when I was at Queen's, left Dungannon, was 18, I lived for four years just around here, and most Sunday evenings I tried to make it to Fitzroy Church. And so this place means a lot to me then, but I feel as though I'm looking at my life in front of me, because there's a couple of people from Dungannon, uh, where I came from. There's people that I met at Queen's. There's Avril that I was in Aberdeen with. There's people from Stormont, where I was an assistant. Then I goes to Limerick, and there's Brian from Limerick, and there's Paul from Armagh, and all the other people that I've met and bumped into over the years. So uh, this place means a lot. And this time means a lot, the 10th of November 2019. This has been the week of the launch of this book, Considering Grace. Uh, three years' work, but probably a lifetime's work, and in terms of gathering stories about Presbyterians and the Troubles, and of course a huge link with this congregation through Gladys and Dave. And it's good to see you both here tonight. Ezekiel is really about how the past is remembered and how people cope with change. And I'm going to talk about Ezekiel, but at the end I'm going to talk about the book because it, there are resonances that go backwards and forwards. Now, I come to you, and this is the disclaimer, I'm a preacher, I'm not a scholar, and I'm in the room with a few scholars here of the Old Testament, so you're going to have to take me as the preacher um, rather than the scholar, but that's... All preachers are scholars to some extent, I suppose. I remember for my 50th birthday present, uh, Christine got me a book called uh, Travels with Herodotus. She must have had some notion that I was going to get back into studying ancient history, which is what I was studying around the corner here. And it's written by a Polish journalist, I'll try and pronounce his name, Ryczard Kapuscinski. He's one of the most famous, actually, travel journalists that's ever been. And he talks about the danger of falling into the trap of a new type of provincialism, which is simply living in the now and forgetting our past. He quotes T.S. Eliot, It is a provincialism not of space, but of time, one of which history is merely the chronicle of human devices which have served their turn and been scrapped for which the world is the property solely of the living, a property in which the dead hold no shares. And he feels he's delivered from provincialism by reading the ancient historian Herodotus on his travels. To protect myself from this temporal provincialism, I set off into Herodotus's world, the wise experienced Greek as my guide. I suppose in traveling through ministry, uh, I've had a guide, one I wasn't always aware of, but he was called Ezekiel, a wise and helpful guide. And his sermons, always very skillfully delivered, have the ability to deliver us from that certain type of provincialism, which has grown stronger and stronger as my life has gone on, which is that you just live in the now. Ezekiel is a difficult book to read. Uh, I want you to imagine somebody in a hundred years or more trying to read my sermons. Boy, they would find it difficult. They'd find it difficult now, but they'd find it really difficult. They wouldn't know anything about me. They wouldn't know anything about the church that I administered in, First Armagh, Christ Church Limerick. They wouldn't know anything about the political context or the local context. 
Well, in a way, that's what Ezekiel is. It's just a bunch of sermons. But unless you understand the context of what's going on, what does it all mean? You're going to be scratching your head. Ezekiel uses exaggerated language. His images are strange. He has some issues, anger, disdain, and he has a rich imagination, which sometimes is a good thing and sometimes would drive you mad. He uses it certainly to great effect later in the book, but when you start reading it at the beginning, you do struggle with his imagination. It's like dealing with the imagination of a child. You know, my five-year-old grandson who's got a great imagination. So what's he talking about? <laughs> the imagination's gone too far. Well, at times you feel like that with Ezekiel. One of the commentators, Joseph Blenkinsop, writes this. The language is rich, overloaded, and frequently hyperbolic. And the images are often strange, remote from mundane experience, and sometimes willfully repellent. The vocabulary is frequently obscure, and the text imperfectly transmitted. The intensity and even ferocity of negative emotion may also be found disturbing, though fortunately it is balanced by the prospect of new life and hope in the second half. In spite of this, Ezekiel is an incredibly successful preacher. There's not many of us can say, you've actually changed the way people think. You have changed the narrative. But Ezekiel did that, along with his older colleague, Jeremiah. They changed the narrative for the people of God. They gave a generation, and generations after them, a different way to look at their world and their God in their time and in their place. They gave a new perspective. Ezekiel is called to communicate with people who sang Psalm 137, verse 1. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? So they were refugees. They were victims, carried off to Babylon from their native Jerusalem. And then nostalgically missing their home city, with its iconic temple. Now, if you look at the handout, uh, you'll see that actually the historical background is mostly copied from Peter McDowell's one on Jeremiah because they were prophesying about the same time. They're in the same historical background. Uh, Ezekiel's a bit younger, but it's the same era. I've also put in there dating in Ezekiel because he's very, uh, he's very keen to tell us when he's speaking. And he throws in the clues, and each of those are a reference to, if you like, 25 years. I've said 25 years in First Babylon, um, all starting with the exile of King Jehoiakim in 598. And then 1 verse 2, it actually tells us when uh, it occurs, and that goes right through to 40 verse 1. I've also put in there the outline of the book, which is quite simple. Chapters 1 to 3 are the prophetic call. Part 2 is chapters 4 to 24, the fall of the house of Judah. And those two chapters are from 593 to 587. And it's coming to terms with the reality that Jerusalem is gone, that they are refugees, that they've had to move home. Parts 3 is chapters 25 to 33, which is a judgment on all the nations, followed by chapter 34 to 48, a new future. 
and they take place between 587 and 571. So it basically is 25 years as a generation of preaching, at about the time that I've been in First Armagh. Ezekiel was born in 622 BC into a family of priests. His father was called Butsi, and he grew up in the time of Josiah's reforms. So it was like a reformation. Josiah was a king, and under his time, people found a new book. It's actually an old book, the book of Deuteronomy. And they built the life of the nation around that book. So it was a time of change religiously, but also a time of change politically. And there was a whole clash of empires. Assyria, at the beginning of his life, was the superpower. But one of the things you learned tonight, my first degree was history, is that all empires end. It's the only rule of history. All empires end. And sure enough, the Assyrian Empire began to fall away, to be replaced by their much smaller neighbor, Babylon. And then you have a huge clash of civilizations between two superpowers. You have Egypt and you have Babylon. 605 BC, the Battle of Karmish. And that dragged Judah, and if you like, what we now call the Middle East, into um, the whole struggle and puts them under Babylonian influence. So when Ezekiel is preaching, there's a mixture of the personal, the prophetic, religious, if you like, and the political. And it gets all mixed up. And actually, those of us who preach, you'll notice that, that you're, who you are as a person, your family, what's going on in the world around you, all gets mixed up. Uh, reading about this morning being Remembrance Sunday, thinking about the Second World War, um, you'll notice people said at the beginning of the Second World War, I can just live my life. I can just sit there and just get on with life. But they couldn't. International things just dragged them in, whether they liked it or not. Same thing with the Troubles. You think you can just live an individual life. You can't. You get dragged into it. And that's what's happening to Ezekiel. It all comes together. Ezekiel starts off being educated in the homely environs of the temple until his education was disrupted in 597 BC. And he's dragged away. He's nothing to do with it. He didn't make any decision. There's no big call of God to be dragged away. It just happens. Another time when his pers the personal comes into the prophetic is in 588 BC, and his wife dies. And we're told she was the delight of his eyes. We're told in chapter 3 how he loses his speech. He has to live in Babylon, which is 700 miles from Judah. I suppose to understand this, we have to understand that Ezekiel was probably post-traumatically stressed. They didn't use PTS in those days. But I think we have to understand that he went through something that was terrible. Jerusalem was besieged by the Babylonians. It was a siege marked by, as all sieges are, tension, moral compromise, and the slaughter of men, women, and children. And if you've seen that, you don't actually recover. And he's called to communicate with a traumatized people. Their move was physical from Jerusalem to Babylon, but it was also emotional and spiritual. So this book is about coming to terms with change. Now, one of the things about the prophets are that 
we know this is in the canon. This has been agreed. This is the word of God. But when Jeremiah and Ezekiel were preaching, this was not declared the word of God. They might have said it, but it wasn't commonly accepted. There was, Jeremiah talks about another prophet, Hananiah. He calls him a false prophet, but not everybody did. Most people have said that Hananiah was the godly one. And Hananiah, to put it simply, what he was saying was, look back to history. When you're in trouble, when the empires come, all you need to do is pray. Just keep praying, and God will rescue you. Look what he did for godly King Hezekiah. Sennacherib, the greatest king of the time, was planted outside Jerusalem. People prayed. They went out one day. Army wiped out. That's all you need to do. But Hananiah hadn't talked about the fact about why they got there, about how the people had sinned, how was God's judgment. Jeremiah, he predicted that Jerusalem would fall. And what people like Hananiah said is, you're just an old misery guts. It's your fault. You're bringing the morale of the people down. In fact, if people listened to me, the morale would be good and we'd be all right. Ezekiel is called to communicate with these people. And it's still disputed until the canon is eventually agreed. But in the end, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, if you like, won. That's why we're reading them today and we're not reading the book of Hananiah. Broadly speaking, the book of Ezekiel contains four themes. And I've listed them there, and I'm going to speak my way through these four themes. The first is theological reflection. The God who moves into our place and time. When I studied in Aberdeen, the professor was J.B. Torrance. I remember well, it was a year or two after I was there, he came and spoke here. You remember that day? It was absolutely brilliant. But he did tend to have one lecture. And I was able to tell Christine in advance, he's going to say this, he's going to say that. <laughs> and sure enough, he did. Take my wife, he always would say, as an illustration of the covenant. Well, one of his great ones that he mentioned, because his one lecture was superb, but I remember most of it, was the first thing that all theologians do is worship. We start with worship. And we worship God, and then we ask, who are we worshiping? So he always would say the who question. Who is God in any particular political context, any personal context? Everything starts with God. And putting yourself in the place to worship God. But he said, if you're worshiping the wrong God, you're really in trouble. Because you're worshiping an idol. So if you worship the God of war, you're likely to go to war. If you worship the God of success, you will look for success. If you don't get it, you'll feel bad. If you worship the God of greed, you will become greedy. So Ezekiel starts by saying, who is God? The book begins when the priest just turns 30 at a place. And the place is incredibly significant. That first sentence, in my 30th year, in the fourth month, the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the river Kibar, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So where is he? He's not in Jerusalem. He's with this insignificant wee stream in Babylon called the Kibar, not even the Tigris or Euphrates, he's just the Kibar by the rivers of Babylon. Ezekiel would have assumed before this that God was a static God. 
And he had a very sophisticated home in downtown Jerusalem, the temple. But now he finds himself removed a refugee. Sacrificial system gone. All the leaders gone. How can we worship God? So the assumption is that God lived in the temple. But if Yahweh was in Jerusalem, he was also beside the Kibar. This insignificant stream. There, the hand of the Lord was upon him. And that thought is further reinforced by the vision of God given to Ezekiel. In a way, Ezekiel, very like uh, the book of Revelation, it's, he writes down what he saw. He's using the sense, the eyes. What do I see? And then he writes it down. So from chapter 1, verse 15, as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. So he's describing in some detail a desert storm coming from the north. In the midst of the wind and the flame are four living creatures, each of whom were multi-faced and had wings. And then Ezekiel adds that they each had wheels. And then he adds that they had wheels within wheels. Now, if you have wheels within wheels, that means that you can turn or swivel, you have mobility and flexibility. I have to say, this is a great sermon for the son of a car salesman. (laughs) I once had to go to Detroit. One of the best few weeks in our lives was to spend three weeks as ecumenical ministers in a church in Detroit. Well, that was my, uh, Detroit's the car place. That was my dad's heaven, you know. To go there and to preach on this was just brilliant. But Ezekiel is learning that God is not restricted to Jerusalem. He's a mobile God who can move, adjust, twist, and turn. And that vision of God is the one that won. That's the one that inspired future generations of God's people to then redefine their image of God. So this mobile God is seen clearly in the Gospels as the God who left heaven and came to earth in human form. John's Gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. As Eugene Peterson translates, he moved into our neighborhood or moved into our time and place. This God is the Messiah who moved freely around Israel, speaking, healing, and showing compassion. This is the Messiah who did not stay in a grave outside the city walls, but was mobile and rose from the dead, moving freely around ancient Israel. And after the day of Pentecost, this God pushed his people out beyond boundaries, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, linked to this theme is the idea that God is holy. He's different. He's set apart. Walter Brueggemann, when he's describing in his book, uh, Ezekiel, he says the thing about Ezekiel, different again from Jeremiah, is he comes from a priestly background. And the priests understood the holiness of God, the otherness of God. So he writes, God will not be mocked. God will not be presumed upon trivialized, taken for granted, or drawn too close. God takes being God with utmost seriousness and will not be caught up in any partisan alliance. God will not be pressed into the service of any other cause, no matter how noble or compelling. I quoted that this morning in my Remembrance Day sermon, that you can't call God up for your cause in the middle of a war. God will not 
become merely on your side. And the challenge for us is always to see that God is God. He is not restricted to one church, one building, one theological tradition. Uh, in this country, we're very comfortable with God marching to a particular beat. Bang, bang, bang. But the vision of God given by Ezekiel is a God who more dances and swivels and responds to situations. So God is greater than our human institutions. In the Reformed tradition, we talk about Jesus Christ being the only king and head of the church. As Christ is mobile enough to move around traditions, so we as his followers should be mobile enough to move around, worship, witness, and learn as we watch the traces of the Holy Spirit operating in different places around us. So God's working to the right of me. He's working to the left of me. God is not struck in a groove of Christendom. And I suppose this idea of holiness, as well, Brueggemann tries to draw this out, that those who minister have to also be holy. He says, a ministry of vitality requires, requires that we are deeply concerned for and utterly free from other people. The biggest temptation today, because everything is consumerized, is that we become religious providers and we simply meet people's needs. Ezekiel's vision of God is very different. We start with God, who is holy. But all of these are held in tension. So the second point, after theological reflection, the God who moves into our place and time is pastoral engagement, a prophet who relates in place and time. Now, the immediate effect that you realize is that Ezekiel is called to minister to these people who are traumatized, but he's immediately told not to be afraid of them. And it's how he perceives the exile. Let me give you a little illustration. My granddaughter, who is uh, two, is going through the temper tantrums, you know. Remember those? And uh, what do you do with the little girl at a temper tantrum? Well, what you tend to do is find a naughty chair. You remove them somewhere. And you say, you're going to sit there until you calm down. More to the point, until you calm down. In a sense, the exile is Israel, the people of God, being removed for a period of 70 years. There's a specific beginning and end. And they're to think, just like a child thinks, and calm down and realize what do we need to learn. The people are troublesome toddlers. They're full of anger, bitterness, and they make a lot of noise. But God is saying to him, do not be afraid of them or their words. And if you ever have to deal with a troublesome toddler, you'll realize you end up afraid of them <laughs> if you're not careful. Ezekiel, in speaking God's word to them, suffers a double exile. He's already exiled from the people of God, but he is going to be exiled from the exilic community. So he's been told, do not be afraid. The real power lies with the God on wheels who is in Babylon with him. Eugene Peterson uh, put in the, the, his book, The Invitation, which is just really, if you read the message before each book in the Bible, he gives you just a very short summary of how to read that book. And in, when he talks about Ezekiel, he says, it's written to avoid two things. 
despair. So the people of God could feel despair and just give up. But also denial. To say, actually, we're not in a bad place. At the beginning of chapter 3, we are given a wonderful picture of how Ezekiel is to be a prophet to his people. Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll that I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. You could describe that as a sweet and sour sandwich. So he's to not just hear the word, but to actually eat it. There's always a danger for Christians that you start reading the word of God, then you start reading books about it, then you start reading more books about it, and then if the day you don't actually take it and get it chewed and become part of your personality. It's a bit like you end up reading cookbooks and never cooking. <laughs> well, that's what Ezekiel is saying here. Eat the word of God. Digest it. Let it get right down inside you. Um, Now, when it comes to preaching, the thing that always strikes me about Ezekiel is that he does not preach down at at the people. He actually enters into their plight. This is real pastoral engagement. And we see this in chapters 3 and 4. And he's trying to show them what is happening in Jerusalem. And there's almost, it's a bit mysterious, there's bilocation going on here. Does, was, was he watching CNN? I don't know how he did this. This is truly mysterious. Or did he get messages every day? But for 390 days, that's more than a year, he acts out the siege of Jerusalem. And he does it by using three objects, a brick, food, and sword. So the first is the brick. And on the brick, and he must have been a bit of an artist, he draws the map of Jerusalem. So you can actually see what's going on. And I presume each morning he came up and people were watching what he was doing. It's an amazing bit of communication. It's a mime artist. He takes an iron griddle from his wife's kitchen, the thing you make pancakes with, and he acts out that Ezekiel is acting Yahweh, but Yahweh is actually against them. And by acting it out each day, you can imagine people thinking, well, what's he doing here? What's going on? He's not even using many words. He then gets himself, he he ties himself up. He takes on Jerusalem's sin. He is the prophet and the priest. And he's also the victim. He's the suffering God. And then there's the food. Wheat and barley, millet and spelt, cereals and lentils and beans. And he bakes bread with these scraps. And and what he does is he eats actually defiled bread. It's disgusting. It's human excrement. It's against the law. He's using human excrement as fuel for baking. It's a bit like Peter in Acts, eating the unclean food. And he's creating here a picture of the siege. And if you ever hear about sieges, including the siege of Derry, of course, that's what happens in sieges. It's disgusting. And he's bringing home to them just how bad it was. And then there's the sword. <laughs> but it's, what's the sword used for? He uses it as a razor. Now, if you ever try to use a sword as a razor, what's going to happen? You're going to make a complete mess of it. Your face is going to be covered in cuts. 
Um, and again, you have to understand the context. A priest always had a beard. So when he shaves off his beard, he's defrocking himself. He's saying, I'm not a priest anymore. This has got too serious. And then he uses his wife's scales and he divides in the, what he's, the hair that he's taken off. Can you imagine this? This again went on for days, or 390 days. You know, what's he going to do next? He divides it in three. And it's a symbol of judgment. And he takes one set of hair and he burns it. The symbol that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And then he cuts up into smaller sections the next set of hair. And that's that those fleeing will be slain. So anybody gets away, they'll still be slain. And then he takes the third and throws it away like that. And they're going to be scattered. But there's a little bit of hope. There are some that he's hidden in his cloak, bits of hair. And that will be the small remnant. So that is, if you like, he has entered into the pain of that. You can't act without entering into pain. You can't do the mime without entering into the how it hurt the siege. He's not saying anything from up here. He's literally getting down into the very rampants. The culmination of his agony comes in chapter 24 when his wife dies. As I said earlier, she's the delight of his eyes, yet suddenly he loses the one who's closest to him. And to the astonishment of the community, Ezekiel does not go through the customary bereavement practices. Everybody knew how much they loved each other. But what Ezekiel is saying is that God himself has lost the delight of his eyes, the temple. So Ezekiel's personal distress is linked to the people's political and spiritual distress distress, and God's own personal distress. So the prophet's tough words of challenge emerge out of shared grief and agony. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes, we need to listen with the ears of God to speak the words of God. So, in a sense, you can't be a prophet unless you have tears in your eyes. I'm sure you've all met and heard preachers, probably including this one, who has become obsessed with one cause, single cause. And it doesn't take long for the cause to become decoupled from their relational intelligence and from their emotions. It's just a cause. And God's got somehow decoupled away. So Ezekiel is both a prophet and a priest. And it's a very hard thing to hold those two in tension. And he's one of the few who did it well. So theological reflection, pastoral engagement, and then prophetic challenge, an alternative agreed story narrated in place and time. We've already seen how he uses uh, what's called the prophetic theater of the absurd to communicate. His language is incredibly direct. Hans Walter Wolf says this, prophecy is essentially a ministry of disclosure, a stripping bear. Prophets tear the mask away and show the true face of the people behind them. So the exiles believed that God was on their side, protecting them against invaders. But during Ezekiel's enacted siege of Jerusalem, he shows them a different story, an alternative story. 
He shows them that actually at times God was on the Babylonian side. He was using the pagan enemy to judge Jerusalem. And he goes through some of the things they needed to think about. If you like when they're in the naughty chair. They needed to think about their the idolatry. Chapter 18 talks about this. They need to think about how they treated the poor. He wanted their, them to take responsibility for their own plight. Therefore, this is chapter 5, verse 7. This is, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standard of the nations around you. In chapters 25 to 30, the prophet preaches a series of sermons that are about how Yahweh will judge other nations. So he lines them up. Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistine, Tyre, Sidon, and Egypt. He wants to show that the children of Israel were sinned, but were also sinned against. They were caught up in a complex Middle Eastern problem to which each nation had contributed. Tyre and Egypt are particularly interesting. Uh, they could be false allies. Tyre were the traitors of the ancient world. So it must have been tempting for the exiles to look to trade to free them from their plight. It's always tempting. It's what grabs your imagination. What are the big idolatries of this world? What are the principalities and powers? And there's lots of tires around today. And the prophet warns them of the danger of trade freed from moral responsibility. And just before we published this book, Marion Press published the biggest seller in Northern Ireland in years, burned by Sam McBride. So I found myself on holidays um, reading about chicken boilers in Dungannon, where I was from. What am I reading this for? Most amazing book, um, which in many ways was prophetic, showing us that in Northern Ireland, as we tried to emerge from sectarianism, what was the idol we followed? The idol of trade. I have to say, completely decoupled from any morality. And just about all of us are involved in it. They may also have been tempted to rely upon the might of Egypt with its wealth and strong military. And he uses this brilliant illustration. This is where Ezekiel is superb. The image of a reed. And if you go to the banks of the Nile, you get plenty of reeds. But if you lean on a reed, it snaps and you're left bruised and on your back. And he's saying in the same way, if you lean on Egypt, it will snap, for it's not a reliable ally. It is powerful and rich, but devoid of any moral character. We see that in chapter 29 and 30. In the scriptures, Egypt is a place of slavery, where people are reduced to a number. It is a place of technological efficiency. I mean, it was the Egyptians who built the pyramids. It was the Egyptians who tried to keep life going by building mummies. It's all about control in Egypt. Meticulous control of the economy, ironically started by Joseph. Control of life and even the attempt to control death. And yeah, you can see the relevance to today. Technology operates on the grounds of efficiency. So when we treat People like robots, prophetic issues start to arise. When technology is coupled with war, it produces weapons of mass destruction. 
like drones in the air. When technology is coupled with money, it produces casino-style banking. When technology is coupled with medicine, it can spawn debates about euthanasia. When people who are not useful are simply thrown out. So to be a prophet is to challenge the accepted narrative, and it is to change the narrative. And the narrative, the prophetic, will always contain elements of judgment, but also elements of mercy. Finally, uh, we have a theological reflection, pastoral engagement, prophetic challenge, and then visionary leadership, images of hope beyond space and time. Philip Yancey had a superb book he wrote a while back called Soul Survivor um, about different books he had read. And he discovered that all effective prophets and preachers were able to combine short-term challenge with long-term hope. All good preachers, all good prophets talk about hope. And I suppose the best examples would be somebody like Martin Luther King. Amazing images of hope that he gave people. And towards the end of the book of Ezekiel, you have these incredible pictures of hope that we still use today. And quickly to give you two, the first is chapter 37. Famous chapter where Ezekiel looks at a valley. And what does he see? He sees bones, dry bones. It's a gut-wrenching sight. It's actually a valley of corpses. It's the mass graves full of Jewish bones. The leftovers of a Babylonian massacre. So some people only saw the dry bones. They only saw the corpses. They only smelt the stench of death. But as Ezekiel the prophet looks at the bones, he sees beyond bones. He sees a vast army. He smells life. So Ezekiel looks at his fellow Jews, and what does he see? They're living in exile in Iraq by the rivers of Babylon, the Tigris and Euphrates. They were losing touch with their god, Yahweh. They had no place to worship. They were separated from the temple. They were weeping, losing hope, losing faith. The stench of spiritual death was descending on them. But that's not what he sees. He's able to see a vast army. He's able to smell life. And that comes about as he speaks God's word, he prophesies, and as he prays. Chapter 47, another great image. It concerns a river, and the river starts as a wee stream in the temple, and then it moves outward through Israel. And if you've ever been in that part of the world, of course, flowing water is brilliant. <laughs> when I was there years ago in the 70s, um, the Jordan was quite a big river. I was back there just a couple of years ago, went to the Jordan, and so we shook. The water's dried up. But the dream in that part of the world is flowing water. And in the chapter 47, it moves through Israel, bringing life and hope even to the desert. As the exiles listen to Ezekiel preaching, they're actually plunging into the river of life. They're getting caught up in God's global plan for all people from all nations. God will make them a blessing, but not just for themselves, but for all the nations of the world. So they're not going to just sing Psalm 137. That's not the only psalm in their armory. They might sing Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord, 
a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his only arm have worked salvation for him. So, to conclude this bit, I bet I'm going to talk about the book. Uh, The ancient scriptures deliver us from provincialism. Christian pastors need to proclaim together that messiahs do rise from graves and churches do come alive. So there's a hope for lost sheep, for exiled minority communities, and for dry, divided churches. The Holy Spirit never allows us to lose hope in God, in ourselves, in our church, and in our world. And hope we can already sing together a new song, for the Lord has done marvelous things. Now I'm going to take 10 minutes or so to talk about the book, because I'm not just talking about the book, but I want to take what I've said about Ezekiel and apply it to the book. Because in this place, Northern Ireland, many church people in both communities actually are post-traumatically stressed. We have lived with horrible images of violence burnt into our collective memory. When I was appointed to chair the panel on the past, we got together, I think five of us, and I think it was even before Gladys joined us, and we talked together about how we had experienced the troubles. And I'm going to tell you quickly just one story. Uh, 1975, September 1975, uh, I was in my last year at school, and it was the day you went to Queen's to have a look around Queen's. So just getting into the car, you could say I grew up in a car family, and I had three friends in the car, and next thing, we heard a bomb. To be honest, that was normal. We'd heard there was a bomb scare. But it came out that a guy called Morris Hobson was getting off the Caledon bus, when the bomb had gone off in Scotch Street, the jack from the car went up in the air and it landed right in the middle of the children stepping off the bus and it hit Morris in the head. And that evening, I went in to see Morris and uh, his, he, was, he, he was unconscious. And his glasses had been knocked right into him here. Um, he was in a very bad way. Actually, the reason I wasn't going to be a minister was I thought I couldn't handle going into hospitals. That day finished that. I actually managed. But it was a horrible sight. Uh, he was unconscious for quite a long time. He missed a year at school. He went back, did his A-levels. Um, he had to have a lot of plastic surgery. He was brilliant at art. And he went to art college, and he did a lot of artwork on what it felt like to be a victim. And, in fact, his art uh, has been shown both in Dungannon, just a yard or two from where it happened, and here in Belfast. And he shows himself from the inside out, horribly contorted, like looking through mirrors. Um, And I suppose that is a picture of how we all, if we've experienced the troubles, how we see God is contorted how we see other people, particularly other community, is contorted. Now, unfortunately, Morris, that affected him. He had epileptic fits and eventually died with one about 12 years on. And his family then, when his mother died, decided that they would try to show what it's like to be a victim. That's why they showed the art. So all of us have been through that trauma. 
what we tried to do in the, as we thought about the book was to, first of all, theologically reflect and to ask that question, who is God? And the psalm we looked at was Psalm 85, and the metrical version of that is, mercy now and justice meet, peace and truth for a embrace. So we're trying to hold together those four things. And if you have one more than the other, you're in trouble. You have to have mercy, but you also have to have justice. You have to have peace, and you have to have truth. And the whole peace process has struggled with holding those together. We haven't done it very well. Truth particularly is the one that's slithered off. In fact, we, we decided for the Good Friday Agreement, we'll, we'll not worry about getting the truth. We'll just try to move on. And it keeps coming back to haunt us. The second thing we did was to try to be pastoral, to listen attentively to victims. And this is where Gladys and Jamie, Gladys have helped us enormously, in, um, not only from Queen's, but in getting funding from the DFA in the South. And we employed Jamie Johannes. Now, if you know Jamie, Jamie's an absolutely superb listener. And uh, he went out on behalf of the Presbyterian Church and listened to, well, he probably did a, nearly 100 interviews, and Gladys as well, and listened attentively. And one of the ways you listen is, of course, to write down and to record, this is what you have said. So for history, we have the story of victims uh, of the troubles here. Um, one of the interesting things is how much people mention that at the time, their pastor was really good to them. They also mentioned surprising amount how much it meant that the priest came to the funeral or called in the house. And you'd be surprised how often that is raised. And then there was an element of the being the prophetic, though I think most of the prophetic bit of this will come afterwards, but we tried to include people who were critical friends, people who had a little bit of distance from the church to tell us how they thought the Presbyterian church handled the troubles, and even people who had left the church. And then finally, we tried, and we are trying the whole way through this project, and Dave is helping us with this in terms of using resources, is to bring hope. There's actually only one person who has been fully just, truthful, compassionate, and peaceful, who has held together those four virtues, and that's Jesus. Think about it. He was truthful in all his relationships. He treated all people equally. He was compassionate, showing mercy to sinners. He was a man of peace, reaching out to people from different backgrounds, whether it be female Samaritans or butch Roman centurions. So in a sense, Jesus is the one who helps us remember well. He leads us to the better day we read about in Revelation, the day when heaven comes to earth. A day when terrorizing lions and vulnerable lambs can actually play together. A day when people from all nations, tribes, and languages worship together at the feet of the Lamb. A day when there will be no more tears and no more weeping. And so there's a sense in which when you think about the past, you have to remember the future. For Christians, the future is a perfect one. Miroslav Volf, the a theologian who originally came from the Balkans. He, he writes this, Our minds will be wrapped in the goodness of God and in the goodness of God's new world. The memories of wrongs will wither away 
like plants without water.